You know, this is a very difficult passage we're going to look at this evening, meaning that I don't know how you get yourself into the emotional depths of what we're going to read. The, the emotion of Jesus in this passage it is so captivating and deep, it's hard to recreate as we sit and we study these verses. Uh, it's so familiar, as I said, we can read over it, we become removed and miss the intense and very personal part that we play in this passage. Did you catch that? That we play a part in this passage. Now, our names don't show up, so don't freak out on me. But we play a part in this passage because as you'll read this with me this evening, you're going to see that you and I are players because we were a part of what took Jesus to the garden as we study. You and I were a part of what took Jesus to the garden as we study this evening. You know, if we're not careful as well as I studied this week and was uh, reminded that, you know, you got to go back and recap sometimes some of the things that we've already studied. So I want you to catch some of the contrasts that we have seen in chapter 14 and we'll see in the verses ahead in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 14 begins like this. That Jesus is anointed in Bethany. He's anointed with very expensive perfume that costs 300 days wages. A very expensive way to anoint and worship Jesus. The contrast to that is that Judas makes a decision to betray Jesus for just four months worth of wages. He sells out Jesus for a whole lot less than he's anointed and worshipped. Jesus goes into the upper room with his disciples to celebrate the Passover meal, as we've read in chapter 14. See this very intimate time of worship with his disciples. The Lord's Supper is instituted, and while they do that, Judas, the betrayer, sits at the table. What a contrast. Peter tells Jesus, as well as the other disciples, we will never betray you. We'll never leave you. We would even die for you. And then in just a few moments, as we will discover, he not only betrays Jesus with the others, they completely run and flee. You have the quietness of the garden with Jesus praying to the Father. The Lamb of God, gentle and loving, worshiping, praying, seeking comfort from the Father and the other side. You have a band of people with clubs and weapons coming to take Jesus. What an interesting group of contrast, isn't it? And so it's with that I want us to think about this passage we're going to look at this evening. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14. We're going to go from 32 to 52. We're going to take it in three different chunks. So follow along with me if you have a Bible or on your phone or on your tablet. If you don't have any of those, I think there's some Bibles in the back. I would encourage you to please grab a Bible or follow along with me if you will. Let's read together starting in verse 32. 
And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, or let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So we've got the scene. Jesus just leaving the upper room. He, he comes out of Jerusalem, out of the city, down through the Kidron Valley, and he goes to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane was a place with lots of olive trees and olive presses. It was a very common place that Jesus frequented. Read John chapter 18, as well as some of the other uh, gospel accounts, parallel accounts to this. And you'll find Jesus would regularly go to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. That was why it was so easy for Judas to know where he would be. Why would you find him? praying where he generally goes to pray. And so on this mount, this place with lots of olive trees, there are lots of olive presses, and we find Jesus and his band of followers this evening. The text says that Jesus comes and he asks all 11, Judas is not there yet, all 11 to sit here and keep watch. He doesn't say pray, he says Keep watch, for he knows what's about to come. And then out of those 11, he takes Peter, James, and John, kind of his inner circle, which he was closest to. And he says, come with me and be with me while I pray. And Jesus begins to open up to them and shares that he is greatly distressed. And he's actually saying, support me, be with me, encourage me because of what I'm about to face. It's in this text we see the great example of Jesus being 100% man, the human side of Jesus, being greatly distressed and troubled, as well as the divine side of Jesus as he communicates with his Father. It's one of those very intimate and great passages in Scripture that, that this shows up at the same time. And so Jesus shares the depth 
of his emotions with these three. Look at the words in the text, if you will, in verses 33 through 36. He uses words like greatly distressed, troubled, sorrowful, even to death. These words describe the depth of this human emotion that was wrestling in Jesus' heart. And he's experiencing a mixture of anxiety, fear, and uncertainty on the human side. But you might be saying, well, if Jesus is divine, why would he experience this kind of trouble? The reason for these emotions, the real reason for all these emotions, is that Jesus was hours away from facing something he had never, ever faced before. And it was separation from God. For all of eternity, Jesus had been with the Father and the Spirit in intimate relationship. But the time is coming moments away when Jesus, for the first time in his whole life, would be separated from his Father. Not only separated from his Father, he would come face to face with the real, raw effects of sin. Jesus, sinless, now separated from God because of sin, which he is innocent of, because he was sinless. And now, finds himself in the garden, praying to God moments before this complete separation would take place. You can see the heaviness, the weight of sin placed on him, your sins, my sin, that's how we're players in this story, in the garden. The olive presses that crushed olives daily to produce oil that was used in society is also the place now where Jesus would begin to be crushed for the sin of you and I. Don't miss this fact. Jesus hated sin and sin's consequences. This was not a surprise to Jesus. He didn't happen upon the garden. He willingly took the journey to be there. This is not a happenstance. So from the very beginning, Jesus had been saying, I'm going to die and I'm going to go to the cross. And he's following through on what he'd been telling them. So he doesn't show up in the garden by accident. He's there on purpose. And the weight of sin is heavy upon him. And as you read these verses, you notice Jesus prays three different times. At least the first time, it was for an hour, it says in the text. What was he praying about? He was not asking God to let mankind be punished for really deserving punishment for their sins, our sins that are separated from God. That's not what he was praying about. The root of his prayer is this. Is there any other way possible, Father, that the sins of mankind can be atoned for, forgiven, and man be reconciled back to us besides what I'm going to face? The humanness again and yet the divine. Is there any other way that this could possibly happen? Yet, what's he say? Yet, not my will, not what I desire, your desire only. He cries out to the Father. 
The cruelty, the wrath, the agony of sin is clear to Jesus. But that would not distract him from obeying the Father. Complete obedience, no matter what the cost, on your and I's behalf. Jesus wasn't afraid of dying. I think in his humanness, he didn't look forward to the act of dying. But he wasn't afraid of dying. This was a crying out to God. And his pleas were all about experiencing sin and its separating power from God. The kind of sin that separates all of us from God. Right? And now Jesus, for the first time, would face that. Verses 35 and 36, we have this intimate view of Jesus and his prayer to the Father. Like a a child coming to their father for comfort, he says, Abba, Father, as he begins to pray. Now, that's a very unique word that is used in this prayer because that was not a word that most Jewish followers would ever think of praying. It would be irreverent, disrespectful, they believe, to cry out to God as Father. In our language today, it would be like using the word Daddy. And so Jesus says, Daddy, Abba Father. Well, why would he do that? Well, I can think of two times in which this would make sense for us to understand as he cries out, Daddy. You remember when Jesus was baptized? All the way back in the book of John? Jesus is baptized, and when he goes under the water and he comes up, a a voice from heaven says what? This is my son, whom I love. My son. And then James, John, and Peter were with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus is glorified there, and it's bright, and they can't see, and they hear from heaven again. A voice, and what's the voice say? This is my son, whom I love. Jesus coming in the garden, praying to his father. And he prays, might this hour pass, or in essence, again, is there any other way in the world in which sin might be dealt with besides what I'm about to face? Not that he didn't want sin to be dealt with, but is there another way? Another way besides me having to face the wrath of God for sin. That's why he uses the word the cup. Might this cup pass from me? The cup represents the wrath of God, the punishment for sin. And so Jesus is saying, is there any other way in which I do not have to face your disgust, your hatred, your punishment for sin. Yet, it's not what I want, it's what you want, he cries out. He's saying, on the contrary, rather instead, my obedience to you, Father, supersedes and is greater than any human emotion or temptation I could possibly face and I trust you with my entire life. That's what Jesus is saying. So in the midst of this garden, he's reminded of the faithfulness of his father to take him through no matter anything he faces in life. 
Not my will, but yours. What a great example of what true faith looks like, isn't it? This complete trust, my Jesus, committing himself into the Father's hands. In essence, saying, my life is secure in your hands. No matter what lies ahead, as bad as it might get, it is worthy to be laid before you and trusted you with. Can you say that? Are you willing to say that? It's hard. No matter what we face in life, no matter what circumstances face us, we're willing to trust God with them. And so Jesus, again, modeling to his followers what true faith and trust in God is all about. Well, verses 37 through 42, we see uh, the weakness of his followers. He asked them to stay and to watch and to support him. And three times he goes away and prays and he comes back finding them sleeping. Let's remember that his inner circle being closest to him, Dr. Luke writes in in his account that, that they were tired because they were emotionally drained. Maybe they got it a little bit. But in the hour he needed his disciples' support, they began the process of falling away, as they would just moments of now, from now in this passage, when they completely run away. I want you to notice, though, in Jesus' prayer, they, he doesn't ask them to pray for him that he wouldn't fall into temptation. Seems kind of interesting, doesn't it? He doesn't say, pray for me that I will fall into temptation. He says, no, you learn to pray so you don't fall into temptation. The, the shepherd, the rabbi disciple maker is shepherding and discipling his followers right up to the end. So in verse 37, Jesus speaks pretty specifically by using a term for Peter that I don't want you to miss. It's just so crazy when you read the end of uh, the verses before uh, 32, verses 31, or 30 and 31, where Peter and the others say, no matter what, we will never deny you. We would die for you. And now, just a few minutes later, they begin the process And I think Jesus wants to make a statement here because he speaks to Peter, but he doesn't use Peter's name. Now, before before Peter uh, became a follower of Christ, his name was Simon, right? And when he begins following Jesus, Jesus calls him Peter, the rock in which he will build his church. But here he says, Simon. I think he's trying to get his attention. It brought me back to when I was a kid growing up. Whenever I got in trouble, my my parents would use my middle name with my first name. They'd say, Jeffrey Keith. And I knew, pay attention. I I did something wrong. And I wonder if Jesus wasn't doing the same thing here by saying, hey, Simon. Simon, remember just a little bit ago you said, hey, I will never leave you. I'm with you to the end, Simon. Good old impulsive Peter Simon. Oh, how that had to kind of hurt, huh? And then verse 38, 
He says, watch and pray so that you won't fall into temptation. Peter and the others, uh, and the love of the master continues as he shepherds them and tells them to be on guard. Don't, don't let your guard down in the days and the hours ahead. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. What an encouragement for you and I. And in the midst of them sleeping and not being there for Jesus, he continues to gently remind and shepherd them. Pray so you don't fall into temptation. And then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I know you desire to do the right thing, but you're not going to do the right thing. I, I know your heart wants to do the right thing, but you're going to fall short. I remember when, uh, as I was studying for this passage, it brought back to me a time in which uh, when our daughter was born, it was our first child, and this was a long time ago, um, about almost 33 years ago now, there was no internet or cell phones or all that kind of stuff that we have now. So we were first uh, parents, didn't have any relatives in the area, so it's kind of like figure out how to be a mom and dad by yourself. And I remember Kim saying this, Whatever you do, when you feed Ashley, don't let the bottle run out of milk, okay? And so I worked uh, during the week, and on the weekends, we flipped the schedule so she could sleep through the night, and I'd do like the 3 o'clock thing. And I was tired. I remember being so tired one time, sitting in the rocking chair on maybe a Saturday night or something, and falling asleep, waking up to see our daughter laying there with their eyes wide open, the bottle empty, and I had no clue how long I'd been asleep. Man, if I wanted to do the right thing. I just couldn't stay awake. And I wonder if it's the same kind of principle here. He's saying, look, brothers, as, as you follow me through life, you're going to want to do the right thing, but you've got to learn to pray because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 41, Jesus now proclaims it's enough. This is not an angry statement to his followers. Don't think that. He's proclaiming that I have prayed and I am ready. And he's also praying and saying, now's the time because moments later, Judas appears on the scene with the mob ready to arrest Jesus. The pieces will now come together, fulfilling the reason in which Jesus came to earth. He was prayed up. He was ready. Verses 43 through 52. Let's look at those together. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man, seize him, and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they left him and fled. The scene at night when the betrayal will take place, not in the daylight. Jesus was pretty popular at the time. They'd have come in the daylight and tried to arrest Jesus. What do you think would have possibly happened? They would probably have a riot on their hand. And so this group that comes with clubs and weapons are made up of temple guards and employed by the religious leaders, plus some Roman soldiers. I say that because Jesus said that he would be betrayed into the hands of sinners. And that's what he was referring to. And so it seems to me that the religious leaders had made sure they painted a pretty sketchy picture of who Jesus was, that he was this guy that was going to cause an uprising, and we better be prepared when we go arrest this guy. And so Judas has this prearranged signal for when they see Jesus so they know who to arrest. Typical greeting for a rabbi at that time would have been a kiss on the hand. But Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek. Even a deeper sense of betrayal, isn't it? Verse 47 doesn't say who, but the other Gospels report that it is Peter who pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Luke records that Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on his head, and heals him. Now here's the thing. You you got this mob of people, and a guy gets his ear cut off. Jesus picks up the ear, puts it back on, and heals it, and nobody says anything. Does that seem odd to you? I mean, like, really, wouldn't you be thinking, why are we arresting this guy? But it's not said or even inferred in the passage, again, so that Scripture would be fulfilled. And so Jesus, in verse 49, says, all these things are going to happen so that Scripture will be fulfilled. And then verses 51 through 52 are two very strange verses. They appear only in the Gospel of Mark. A young man followed him, verse 41, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he, uh, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Strange. Why in the world would that show up in these verses? Thanks for giving me these verses, Ronnie. I appreciate that. I think a little bit of study will explain this, to be honest with you. We know that Mark was not one of the 12 disciples to follow Jesus. Matter of fact, um, Mark takes his, uh, his message that he writes from Peter. I think when you look at this text, and Mark being the only one that doesn't say, Peter cut off the ear of Malchus, kind of gives us a hint that probably this is Mark, a young boy in the crowd, observing what took place. And do you notice what Mark does as well? He runs. He flees. He doesn't try to make himself look better if it is him by saying, I stood and fought. 
now he he ran. Well, I want us to think as we close uh, real quickly about what in the world do we take from these passages to apply to our life? What's the so what for us? What's the thing that we walk away with or should walk away with as we read these very familiar verses and as we think about the implications for us? So I got a couple here, and the first one is this. The garden reveals the magnitude of the gospel. The garden reveals the magnitude of the gospel. And when you and I grasp the magnitude of the gospel, it should drive us to repentance and worship. It should drive us to repentance and worship. Now, if you've been with us very long, um, the gospel is talked about a lot here at Substance. That's because it shows up here all the time, right? I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, the storyline of Scripture is the gospel. God creating man, man being separated because of sin, needing some way to be reconciled to God. Jesus comes to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that restores us back to God. The garden reveals the magnitude of the gospel. I say it for this reason. When you look at this intimate picture of the garden and Jesus, we see Jesus' heavy, laden, sorrowful, greatly distressed. And that distress was understanding for the first time the second person of the Godhead being separated from the Trinity as well as experiencing sin. This extreme emotion being expressed by Jesus from the Father's wrath bearing down on him and being separated, which he had never, ever experienced before. And why in the world would he willingly go to the garden? Because the garden is the beginning of where we see love and mercy and grace be understood. Jesus showing up in the garden to deal with our sin, our separation from God, most willing to take your and my punishment for sin because that is why he came. Therefore, Jesus becomes this sacrifice, the once and all sacrifice for sin who entered our world, became man, who lived as man was meant to live, Sinless, who would be the sacrifice once and for all so that we could be reunited with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. Why is the garden so heavy? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. The love required by Jesus to stand in your place and my place is immeasurable. Again, this didn't take Jesus by surprise. This was his destiny that he completely understood. 
And so worship should spring from our hearts when we understand the magnitude of the gospel. It'll come from a heart that is so amazed at the love and obedience of Jesus for you and I, you couldn't help but worship and praise him. That's true worship. Repentance, uh, understanding that the only reason Jesus was in the garden to begin with is because of our sin. Which should bring repentance. I would say woe to us who reduce worship to something impersonal. To an activity that uh, happens once a week on Sunday, probably. Woe to us who get frustrated because we don't get the kind of music we want. Woe to us that we don't get the kind of programming we think we deserve. Woe to us. Woe to us. When we reduce the garden to something that's about us, and it does not drive repentance and worship. John chapter 1, Jesus, or John the Baptist proclaims Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is the same Lamb who now walks into Jerusalem to be put on a cross for your nice sins. I was thinking as well this week as I studied. As Jesus was in the garden and in essence praying, is there any other way that we can deal with sin and reconcile man to ourself? The answer was no, right? God didn't say, here's another option. No. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you want to get in an argument today in our world? Sit down and have lunch in the workplace and proclaim that. Oh, there's got to be another way. There's no other way. This is proof. As Jesus prayed, God gave no other way. The magnitude of the gospel in the garden, here's a few thoughts. Jesus' separation from God would become our unity. His punishment would become our forgiveness. His life would become our ransom payment. His prayer would be our comfort. And his obedience would become our inheritance. The garden reveals the magnitude of the gospel. Second thing that I noticed is that the garden, again, models prayer that is necessary for faithful following in our faith. Prayer modeled in the garden by Jesus is the model of what it takes for faithful following. The prayer life of Jesus was so extraordinary, it's an example of dependence and obedience to the Father always. The other thing I noticed this week that came to mind is when you look at Jesus' prayer, it very closely, at least in part, models the prayer that Jesus had taught his followers earlier. And remember when they came to him and said, teach us how to pray? Where we have the recording of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, right? A lot of us uh, memorize that, or maybe you said it in church service. But I want you to notice three pieces that Jesus prays here 
or teaches about prayer that show up in the Lord's Prayer. First, Jesus cries out, Abba, Father, or Our Father. He models to at least the three who are only a stone's throw away, who I'm sure could hear Jesus' prayer, Our Father. And then Jesus says, Not my will, but your will. And you remember in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not on earth, or on earth as it is in heaven. And then finally, you remember the piece of the Lord's Prayer, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You remember that piece? I make sure you're awake. Are you awake? Okay. You remember that? Lead us not into temptation. And what does Jesus teach his disciples? Pray this way. Pray that you won't fall into temptation. And so Jesus models that we're to pray ahead of temptation so we can be strong in facing it. Peter, James, and John failed to do this, and they fall to temptation. They run from their faith. They rely on themselves. They miss the gospel storyline to some degree. They reject Christ, whom they promised they would die for, because they didn't pray ahead of time. Jesus says pray so that you don't fall into temptation. You remember 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Be watchful. Be, be proactive in praying so that you don't fall into temptation. But I suspect you might be like me, who tend to minimize my temptations, and I think I can handle them on my own until I come face to face with them. I was thinking as I wrote the sermon that uh, in doing that, it would be kind of like going on an African safari, a safari and taking a squirt gun to shoot at a charging elephant. That's kind of what happens when I don't pray about my temptations. It would be pretty useless. What are things that tempt you? What do you need to begin to pray for? You know, for Judas, it was coveting, wasn't it? Judas would betray Christ because money was a temptation for him. And he coveted money. Peter, it was probably pride because he easily would speak and say he was able to do things that he most often couldn't do. For the disciples that night, it was self-reliance. And they didn't pray. What is your temptation? Finally, the last thing that I think I want to highlight that the garden reminds us of is the garden reminds me the cross demands my devotion. The garden reminds me the cross demands my devotion. If you take notes, I want you to write down this question. I want you to pray about this. Here's the question. What are you aspiring to in your faith? What are you aspiring to in your faith? You know, what are the things that you use to gauge and evaluate your spiritual life? Is that how many times you show up to church on a Sunday? 
One of the things I do outside of substance is work with pastors as district superintendent. And I'm sad to say that most pastors would tell you that if you can get people to show up twice a month to a church service, they feel like that's as good as they'll get. That's pretty sad, isn't it? Twice a month? I mean, really? We look at the garden and, hey, Jesus, I can give you twice a month. What are you aspiring to in your faith? Some of you have heard me say it before. You know, it's easy to be a church attender, but we're not called to be church attenders, are we? We're called to be disciples. And to be a disciple, you must be devoted. One of the biggest spiritual deceptions that we all face is this lie and temptation to make your faith only about attending church. This past week, I was in New York State doing some teaching with a group of pastors. And uh, with this group of pastors, um, there's a guy who uh, attends that's a missionary around the world. And I'm being careful because I wouldn't want to use his name and I don't want to talk about where he travels. But this individual always is one of those guys, and this is not a bunch of scary missionary stories I'm trying to tell you. I'm I'm saying this is genuine. As, As we stopped and talked about how do we make disciples in churches, what do the people that he works with face? They face death. They say yes to Jesus. They go back to their town and start telling other people about Jesus. Literally, by name, he will tell you they either will be beaten or killed. And why in the world would they go back and do that? Because they're devoted to Jesus. They're not devoted to a church service. They're devoted to Jesus. So when I think about church and the western world and the things that hang us up I'd have to say man sometimes Jeff included how devoted am I is my faith something I try to slide in when it's convenient or do I start with my faith and then only slide other thing in when it's convenient devotion brings an abiding heart that grows in intimacy with Christ. We look at Jesus and the way he obeyed the Father is because he trusted. He relied upon everything the Father had promised and said. And to be devoted requires the same thing. Am I a devoted follower or Christ or a convenient, comfortable church attender? That's my question for you. Can you say without reservation you're willing to pray that not your will, but his will for your life? Regardless of where it might take you or what the situation might find you in? No, we're called to be a devoted follower of Christ. Well, here's some good news. I know it's been heavy and I put some big stuff down on us tonight. But here's the good news. These same group of followers who ran from Jesus when he gets arrested are the same ones we read about in the book of Acts. They're not cast off by Christ because they denied him or ran from him. The good news is Jesus always says, "Not come back. I'll forgive you. Come back. 
So for Jeff and for you, when that happens, the way back is always clear. Amen? Come back. Get back on track. Follow Christ. Question now for you and I is a couple of things as I close. Have some of us gotten comfortable with our faith? Have we forgot the great cost of salvation for you and I to be reconciled to God? Do we miss the magnitude of the gospel? And if you would be so brave in your own heart to say that's it, and I'm not saying that you have to say that, but if that's the case, then repent of that. The garden should always remind us of the magnitude of the gospel. Second, when you look at your prayer life, are you willing to pray, not my will, but your will, and pray ahead of the temptations that we'll face each and every day? And then maybe some of you would say, when I look at my life, uh, I confess I'm more of a church attender than a devoted follower of Christ. Maybe your devotion is there, but it's lukewarm. Maybe you were convinced as you thought about what you aspire to in your faith that you simply have the wrong aspirations. Whatever it is this evening, may we be reminded of the goodness and the grace of Jesus to constantly restore us and encourage us back and that we might live for him and with him because of what he did in the garden. Let's pray. Father, thanks this evening for your word and for your son and for the lessons from the garden. Lord, it's easy as we started by saying these are familiar passages. And when we think about the garden, there is so many significant things for us to consider. And right now, will you just graciously deal with our hearts as we think about how we might answer some of those questions that I posed this evening. We are grateful and thankful for you and your love, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.